Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who had examined me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living, who serves as a soldier at his own expense, who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit, or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope, sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. The grass withers and the flowers fade. The word, the word of, of our God, God stands forever. Thank you, Meredith. So I'm gonna go ahead and give an excuse for any mistakes that were made today, because we had a party last night, and so we're all tired. So I've already been told by one of my favorite elders Terry Morrow, that I looked tired and sounded groggy. So I was like, appreciate that, man. Appreciate the encouragement. Um, so, but we had, a, we had a, a great time last night at our pumpkin party, and so, um, so we'll just chalk it up to that, okay? <laughs> so, um, but let me pray, and uh, we'll jump in. Father in heaven, thank you uh, for gathering us. Thank you for um, your word um, that speaks truth to us. 
Uh, thank you for a day set aside um, during the week that we can gather as a body to learn from this word. And so, God, I pray that you would open our eyes and our minds and our hearts uh, to hear and behold wonderful uh, and magnificent things today from this word. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we've been making our way through the, through the letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. And kind of the theme that we've been coming back to is, uh, because he's writing to Christians, he's writing to a church. And so um, one of the things that Paul is really trying to do is to create unity within the body of believers. And so the theme that we've kind of pulled out of that is, is living as a unified body in a, in a fractured world. And so if we're, if we're going to live as a unified body in a fractured world, as Christians, as the church, uh, this will require us to live lives of abandonment. When Jesus says in the Gospels, take up your cross and follow me, essentially what Jesus is saying to us as believers, as Christians, is abandon your life and follow me. The, the, the cross was an instrument of death. So to take up your cross meant you were going to die. And so this is what Jesus is calling us to. Abandon your life and follow me. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a pastor um, who was killed by the Nazis um, during World War II, he wrote this in his book called The Cost of the Discipleship. It's, it's an extended quote, but I think it's worth it. He says, The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christian suffering which every person must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old person which is the result of their encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him, or it may be a death like Martin Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world, but it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at his call. Now this means that this is way more than a once a week meeting. Christianity. In America, that, that's what some believe Christianity entails, is that you go, you go to church one time a week. But let me just, you know, crush anybody's kind of uh, thinking about that and say, that's not Christianity. That's not Christianity. Let me just, let me illustrate it in this way. If you were to tell your spouse after taking these high and mighty vows that I'll stay with you um, in sickness and in health and, 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 and richer or poorer and all of those things, if you were to tell your spouse, I'll get up with you once a week for about an hour or two, maybe, uh, for shallow conversation and coffee. If you did that, you wouldn't be married very long. 
So why do we do this with our faith? Well, I think a big reason is because we live in a world where looking out for self is priority number one. So me time and uh, treat yourself and self-care have all become part of our everyday vernacular. And we tend to, to take these things and to put ourselves before others, which is the opposite of what Jesus calls us to. It's the opposite of what Christianity is. Well, in our text today, Paul is showing his readers what it means to lay down your life as a believer, to abandon your rights, to abandon your freedoms, all for the sake of others knowing Jesus. Because when you begin to live in this way, your rights that you have become comparatively unimportant. So the questions before us this morning that I want you to keep kind of locked in your head are these. Are you willing to abandon your rights for the sake of the gospel? And, and that's a question for the Christian and, and the non-Christian. Are you willing to abandon your rights for the sake of the gospel? And then this, to just kind of piggybacking off of Bonhoeffer, what attachments to the world do you need to abandon for the sake of the gospel? And then what is hindering you from drawing close to Jesus? Well, in our text, Paul gives three glimpses of what a life abandoned to Christ looks like by giving three areas in which this takes place in the Christian's life. One is the abandonment of provision. Two is the abandonment of preferences. And three is the abandonment of comfort. And my apologies, I tried my hardest to do another P word, and I could not make it happen. So the abandonment of provision, the abandonment of preference, and the abandonment of comfort. So number one, the abandonment of provision so, so this glimpse that Paul gives us is, is the longest one in chapter 9 because Paul is establishing the premise of his argument where he, that he will work from throughout this chapter. So the first thing that Paul sets out to do here is, is not to defend his apostolic authority as some think this is teaching here. Paul, Paul doesn't need to do that. But he is establishing the rights that he has because of his apostolic authority. He has certain rights because of that. So, so before we get into to why that's important, we have to know what an apostle is. And so I'll just give you a very, very simple definition of what an apostle is. So an apostle is someone who witnessed the raised Jesus. Someone who, who had a physical encounter with the resurrected Lord. So, so I emphasize it in that way because this means, just as a little side note, this means there are no living apostles today. I don't care what titles people give themselves um, throughout uh, Christendom or whatever it is. There are no living apostles today uh, because you had to have a physical encounter with the living Christ in order for that to be so. So, so apostleship is this 
cruciform agency that, that points to Christ's own abandonment of all of the things in this world and his death, and, and they do so by word, they preach, by deed, and just how they, and how they live their life. And, and the Apostle Paul obviously meets all of this criteria. He encountered the risen Christ in Acts chapter 9, and his entire life from that moment on was a sharing in the sufferings of Christ in every way. This is what what Jesus uh, says would happen. He says that, that Paul will suffer for my name's sake. So in verses 1 through 2, Paul uses four rhetorical questions to establish this premise to which he will then argue from throughout the rest of this chapter. So look there with me. Paul says, or he asks, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So it's important to understand the difference between, because there's a several, uh, I think Paul asked like nine or ten rhetorical questions throughout this chapter so I think it's important to understand the difference between real questions and rhetorical questions so real questions are meant to draw out information or 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 a specific response so so what is your name my name is Kevin that's that's a real question so a rhetorical question uh, rhetorical questions are used to convey or call attention to information so I would ask the question Am I, not a, am I not the pastor of Christ the King Church? It's to, it's to point to something specific to call attention to that. Because you would say, yes, of course you are. So Paul uses these rhetorical questions here to illustrate his apostleship. And more importantly, to highlight that apostles have certain rights that, as we'll see, Paul foregoes for the sake of the gospel. So he goes on in the rest of the chapter to show how he's abandoned them all for this single reason. And the first being the abandonment of provision. Look at verses 5 through 7. Paul says, Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and, and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating of any of its fruits? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? So in these verses, and the ones to follow, Paul creates this tension to get his point across. And he does this by using, in my opinion, uh, one of the most sensitive subjects on the planet, especially within the church. And that's the subject of money. And if you don't believe me on that, if you're just kind of like, ah, that's not that big of a deal. If if you don't believe me, I want you to do this. Uh, After the service today, I want you to walk up to the first person you see, whether you know them or not, and ask them uh, how much uh, their salary is. Okay? I expect to see that after the service today. And if that's, if that's not enough, if they're, like, if they're unfazed by that, I want you to ask them how much they give to the church based off of their salary and then have a little discussion about that. 
And then if that's not enough, they're like, you're like, man, you give, you give way more than I thought you did. Then ask them, uh, it, it, ask them if you can get their budget, their personal budget, family budget, and ask them if you can comb through their budget and then go through there and think of ways that they can cut back. I can guarantee you, you will not be friends with that person ever. And if you were friends with them, it, the friendship has just ceased to exist because money is so touchy. I also know this to be true because every year out of all the members meetings that we have, the annual meeting that I announced earlier where we vote on the budget receives the most questions out of all of our other member meetings combined. Now, I'm not saying don't ask questions. So in two weeks, don't go, well, Kevin said he's, he's going to be bothered. I, I, want, I want there to be an open discussion. I want us to nitpick the budget, why it's nodding his head. Um, so I want, that to be, I want that to happen. The prudence is need, we need to have prudence around finances within the church because so many times people have corrupted it. But there's a reason. Money is a sensitive topic. And so Paul takes this sensitive topic and he builds this argument concerning financial provision, which I'll say financial provision for pastors and ministry leaders, you know, apostles, to eventually make a greater point. To say that their, their right to financial provision is just as needed and just as important as all other vocations' right to financial provision. He uses soldiers and farmers, but I would throw in there doctors and engineers and financial planners and teachers and all of the, the, the different vocations that are out there. But this is not Paul just making an empty claim. But this is a claim that's backed by ordinary practice. You work, you get wages. It's backed by biblical precedent, it's backed by common sense. It just makes sense that we pay somebody who works for us. Uh, it's backed by religious custom. And it's even backed by Jesus himself, who says in Matthew 10, 10, speaking to his sent out disciples. They are professional disciples now. They're going out into the world to preach. He says, the laborer deserves his wages. And then Paul, here in the text even quotes from the law. He quotes from Deuteronomy 25, 4 in verses 8 through 9 to make his point clear. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And then if you go further into Paul's letters in 1 Timothy chapter 5, where Paul is writing to uh, Pastor Timothy and giving him instructions on uh, how the church is to function, he puts both Jesus' words and the law together. And he says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Amen, Paul. Um, for the scriptures say, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So needless to say, Paul makes an airtight argument for his right and Barnabas's right and any other minister of the gospel's right to be paid for what they do. 
So Paul and, Paul and Barnabas were, were both entitled to making their living by their, uh, by their pastoral work exclusively. Look at verses 11 through 12, or the first part of 12. Paul says, If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? So Paul is solidifying the argument here. But in the second part of verse 12, this is the point that Paul is trying to make. We have this right to be paid. We, we have this right. It is, it is biblical. It is traditional. It just makes sense. And then Paul says in the second part of verse 12, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So this is what Paul has been building toward for 11 verses. Why does he do this? Well, to show the main point of his argument, which is nothing should get in the way of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even this apostolic right that Paul has to financial provision, Paul is saying, if this gets in the way of me proclaiming the gospel, I will gladly give that up as well. So this should remind us to connect us back to Paul at the end of chapter 8 that Tyler preached on last week um, when Paul says if this whole argument about food, uh, sacrifice to idols, should we eat it, should we not eat it? Um, and Paul says, if food makes my brother stumble, if this, if this meat that has been sacrificed to idols, which we're free to eat, you're not, you're not worshiping an idol when you eat it. You can eat it if you want to. But Paul says, if this meat makes my brother or sister stumble, if it leads them into sin, I will never eat meat again, Paul says. Now, you have to understand, Paul isn't choosing to be a vegetarian or to, or, or to put his, uh, or, or, to, or to live a life of poverty for his own benefit. And I think a lot of times we do that. We want to be self-righteous, so we only eat vegetables, or we just care so much for animals, and so we, we think we're saving lives by doing that, or whatever it might be. Or we might take a vow of poverty um, for the heck of it because we want to rid ourselves of these, of these worldly constraints or whatever it might be. Or you might just be a minimalist or whatever that might be. That might be modern-day poverty, and so we get rid of all these things. But let's just be honest. When you do those things, you're looking down on everybody else. <laughs> I'm better than them because I do this. I'm better than them because I don't do that. But Paul doesn't do it for this reason or those reasons. Paul does all of it so that the gospel would move forward. It's his only reason for doing it. Verse 18. Paul asks again, what then is my reward? For doing all this, what is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my rights in the gospel. So Paul doesn't want anyone to be able to say to him, you're only doing this for the money. You wouldn't be preaching this message if you weren't getting paid so much. Or if these Corinthians weren't paying you, uh, you, would, you wouldn't come to them with this message that they just want to hear. 
which is what other speakers and uh, traveling uh, speakers of that day did. But Paul says, there is nothing that will get in the way of my proclamation of the gospel. Not food, not money, not anything. So what are you allowing to stand in your way? American Christianity has created a culture within the church that is very much me-centered, to go back to my illustration in the intro. Multiple services at multiple times, so you, fit, you, you come to what you feel comfortable with. If you want to go out and have brunch, hey, we'll have an we'll afternoon service just for you. If you want to come early and you want to hear traditional worship music, We have a service for you. If you want to hear more contemporary stuff, we have a service for you. Uh, Multiple times, polished music, celebrity pastors, slick programs, and minimal accountability. And that's the culture that the church has created. I'm not talking about the world. I'm talking about what the church has created. So let me just remind you of the questions I asked in the intro. What attachments to the world do you need to abandon in your life for the sake of the gospel? Are are there things in your life right now that are preventing the gospel to move forward for you personally but also amongst those that you have some influence over? Maybe in your family. Maybe as a man, you're not leading your family well. And there's some things there that are preventing you from doing that. And you need to rid yourself of those things. Maybe it's in your work or at school or whatever it might be. Think about those things. Because to break away from the attachments of this world frees you to experience the gospel in all of its fullness and in turn to present it to others without hindrance like Paul. So this is what Paul does by abandoning his right to financial provision, but he also does this by abandoning his preferences, his rights to preferences as well, in verses 19 through 23. So in these next five verses, which is a little shorter than the first section, Paul emphasizes that in order for the gospel to move forward, personal preferences must be abandoned. So look at verses 19 through 23 again with me. Paul says, for though I am free from all, <clears throat> I, made, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessing. So Paul begins this second section in verse 19 basically saying, I am free to live for myself. I can do whatever I want. And yet Paul demonstrates for us in verses 20 through 23 that he abandons this freedom to live for himself, to live however he wants 
for the sake of others knowing Jesus. He abandons his personal preferences. Now, knowing Paul a little bit just from the scriptures, I'm sure Paul felt most comfortable and at home with Jewish intellectuals. Paul was a, Paul was a genius. He had the credentials. He, he, could, he could stand up in any sort of circle and own it. He was that sort of man. So I'm sure he was way more comfortable with people who were of his intellectual prowess or those who were powerful. Before Paul became a Christian, he was a very powerful man uh, because that's the type of pedigree that he had. Uh, Philippians 3, 4 through 7, Paul talks about this. He says, though I, myse- I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, uh, meaning I have confidence in my, I can have confidence in myself because if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul says, you cannot touch my credentials. So I'm sure it was easier to be around those who believed the same way Paul believed who grew up in the same way he grew up. I'm sure he could carry on just this wonderful conversation about his childhood with his childhood friends and and things like that or people like him. And even as I was thinking about this week, I was wondering, just as as a question for you guys, do you find yourself doing this? Moving towards those who make you comfortable. Or, or those you prefer to be around. Even if it's people you don't like, you just think, man, that person looks really cool. I want to hang out with them. Let me go talk to them. Um, some of you did this today during the passing of the peace. I- instead of moving towards someone new or someone different than you that you already know, but you just avoid them, you floated toward that same group of three or four people that you see all the time. And the reason you do that is because you're comfortable around them. You can be yourself. You can have a good conversation. You know what you're going to talk about. But for, but for Paul, instead of taking advantage of his personal freedoms to do just that, to only be around Jews, <laughs> Paul deliberately makes himself a slave to everyone, to every group. To, to every person just kind of on this, this spiritual scale, to every sort of, of culture that Paul is called to, Paul makes himself a slave to all. He lays aside personal preference. Why? Well, in verse 19, he says, that I might win more of them. <clears throat> so Paul does all of this to draw people into Jesus. So what exactly does this mean? So typically for those of us who have grown up in the church, the use of this word uh, win or winning people or whatever it is, we've put into the category of evangelism. So you, you may be familiar with the term soul winner, which I am not a fan of but that is just how the word has been used. So which I think that that's partially what that means here, but I don't think it's the main meaning of what Paul is talking about. Because anytime you're studying the scriptures, it's always good to take the scriptures within the context in which it lays. 
We can't pull Scripture out of its context. So, the, so because of the context, a closer understanding of this word when that Paul uses is that it's speaking of someone being one back to the Lord. So Paul already, from the very beginning of the, of the, of the letter, he has been, he's been doing this. He's been trying to draw the Corinthians back. He's been trying to unify them again around the gospel. He's not really speaking to unbelievers here, although they might hear just kind of, you know, on the side. Paul is calling believers back to the gospel. He's winning them back to the gospel. So remember, Paul's audience here is Corinthian Christians. It is the Corinthian church, and they're from all sorts of backgrounds and cultures, Jews and non-Jews, weak and strong, powerful and and, uh, not so powerful, rich and poor. This This is the Corinthian church. And so he was also dealing with those who had an elitist mentality. They thought, even as a Christian, I'm better than my brother or sister in Christ because of X, Y, Z, because I follow this particular preacher or leader or whatever it might be, or I live in this certain way, so I am better than somebody over here. People who are puffed up with their pride, sinning against their brothers and sisters in Christ. And ultimately, what they're doing is dividing the church. And so Paul is saying they need to be won back to the gospel because that's what brings unity in a fractured world. So instead of writing all of these folks off and gravitating toward those who are comfortable, those who are obedient or, you know, who are listening to Paul's words, those who respect him and love him and just kind of try to put him on a pedestal, instead of just gravitating to those people and writing everybody off, everybody else off, Paul makes himself a servant so as to call them back to the gospel. And just to use one example from Paul's list, because he just gives the list for his readers so that they, they completely understand. And you got to love the way in which Paul writes his letters because he's just kind of all over the place and he wants to make himself, make sure that he's clear about what he's talking about here. But just to use one group, which is the Jews, this means when Paul was with Jews, he still prepared to practice Jewish customs when he was with them. He was prepared to eat in the way they did. He was prepared to pray in the way they prayed. He was prepared uh, to dress as they would have expected him to dress. He wasn't trying to be edgy. He wasn't trying to just kind of push the envelope with them. Paul was a Jew so that he could win the Jews to Jesus. But being a Jew, as the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says, was no longer who he was at the deepest level. Paul was a Christian. Deep down, that's what he was. He was a Christian. And this is what enabled Paul to be able to maneuver in and out of these different settings with different people all the time, calling them to the gospel. So this goes without saying, I hope at least. But becoming all things to all people isn't easy. It demands costly effort and costly sacrifice from you. I mean, you saw that in Paul's own life. Which is why Paul concludes this this chapter with the analogy of a disciplined runner in verses 24 through 27 to illustrate what it looks like to abandon physical comforts. Look at verses 24 through 27. Paul asking a question again. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? 
So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable wreath. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So as you know, we have a lot of um, sports fans in here and uh, ex-athletes and wannabe athletes now, but but you know, someone who wants to compete uh, at a high level has to make personal sacrifices and experience great discomfort in order to do so. So um, the Kenyan marathon runner, Kelvin Kipton, I, I'm probably not pronouncing that right, but uh, he set the, the world record uh, two weeks ago at the Chicago Marathon uh, with a, a, a time of two hours 35 seconds. Now, if you're a runner, you kind of get that. That is, that is incredibly fast. And if you, if you don't remember, a marathon is 26.2 miles. So, uh, so Kelvin was running an average mile time at about 4 minutes 38 seconds. And he held that the entire race. Unbelievable. Just, just, to, give you, just to give you a comparison, my fastest mile time... And I know you're thinking, man, it was probably fast. But my fastest mile time was eight minutes. And I was only running one mile. So I gave it my all. I mean, I died to get eight minutes. He ran it in almost half that, 26.2 miles. Now, needless to say, Kelvin didn't just wake up on October 8th strap on some running shoes, and then just show up at the starting line of the Chicago Marathon and then run. There's no way he could have done that. No, he had to beat his body into submission to run a 438 mile. His training schedule leading up to the Chicago Marathon had him running 186 miles a week. That is unreal. But that's what he had to do to get a time like that. So in the time of Corinth that Paul is writing to, there was, um, this is pre-Olympics, okay? So they had what they called the Isthmian Games, the Isthmian Games. So it was pre-Olympic Games. So the Corinthians were very familiar with this sort of illustration that Paul was giving because they were around people who were training for these games. And so they understood that they were, they were beating up their bodies. They were disciplining them, foregoing much to compete at the highest level of competition. They saw it, and they probably were, were there cheering them on and thought, wow, this is incredible that these, these athletes are, are, are getting these times and doing these great things. But what are they doing it for? They're doing it for a pine leaf garland crown. That's it. That will perish and fall apart. It won't even last. And so Paul takes that illustration and then he contrasts this with the reward the Christian receives in the Christian life. When he says, but we receive an an imperishable reward, an imperishable crown. A crown that will never fade. 
a crown that will never fall apart. So just so, you're, so we're clear, Paul isn't referring to salvation here we, because we don't earn our salvation. It is, it is a free gift to us. We don't have to, to beat our bodies and make it a slave so that, we can, so that God will favor us, so that, God will, that, so that God will save us. We don't have to do that. So Paul isn't speaking about that, but, but rather Paul is speaking about the fruit that comes from the labors of the gospel. So in verse 1, of, of Paul, Paul refers to the Corinthians as his workmanship in the Lord. He uses this language throughout his letters. In Philippians 4.1, he calls the Philippians his joy and crown. In, in 1 Thessalonians 2.19, he asks the question uh, to the Thessalonians, for who is our hope or joy or crown of boasting in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you, he says. So Paul is saying that this, the, you are my crown. You are the one who, who, who not only points to my apostleship, but you are the one who, who, who is pointing to this great work of the gospel among you. So Paul is saying our boast is not in ourselves, but in what God is doing through us in the gospel. Because Jesus abandoned it all for us. This enables us to do the same for others. So if you're thinking, if you're sitting there thinking, oh, I cannot, there's, I, don't, I can't think of anything that I, uh, that I can abandon, or, or, or maybe more realistically you're saying, um, I can't think of anything that I want to abandon for the sake of the gospel. Or can abandon. I mean, like, I don't really know if I have the physical capability of doing so. But if you are a Christian, the Bible says that you have been given everything in life and in godliness because of what Christ has done, because Christ abandoned it, it, it all. And this is where the cross is, is foolishness, what Paul talks about in chapter 1 of, of 1 Corinthians. This is why it's foolish. If you notice, out of all the things that Paul said he became— he never says he, he, he became to the sinner. He, didn't, he never says, to the sinner I became sin. He never says that. Why? Because Paul couldn't. But Jesus is the one who does say that because Jesus did. To the sinner he became sin. Sin. Paul says this in his second letter to the Corinthians, uh, verse five. I mean, chapter five, verse twenty-one. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus truly became all things to all people in every way, so that he might win everyone. No one is exempt from that work. Because he became like us in his death so much so that he takes on our sin like it's his own and died the death that we deserved because of that sin. And this is what we boast in because this is the only news worth boasting in. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, 
I pray that you would steady our hearts now in the reality of this uh, gospel truth to us. That we would recognize that it is nothing in ourself that we can boast, but that it is only uh, uh, in Christ that we boast. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ right now that whatever they are holding onto, whatever stands in the way uh, of, of, of moving forward in the gospel, that they would abandon it today. I pray for my friends here who don't yet know Jesus. I pray that they would abandon their lives for the sake of the gospel, for knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. I pray that they would do that today. So God, I pray that you would, you would get the glory in everything, that you would, even as we, as we see your work amongst us, that we would never look at ourselves and say, well done, but that we would look to you and praise you for it. And so God, we thank you for what you have done for us in Christ, and it's in his name that we pray, amen.